moves us from the unconscious, undifferentiated wholeness with the bull through to its dark, instinctual, half-human nature of the Minotaur, to its heroic form as Theseus, to a final union with the divine inner masculine. from a talk given by Mary Symes to the C.G. Jung Society of Melbourne. And welcome to the Society's podcast, I'm Ariel Moy. The Jung Society offers a space for the exploration and development of Jungian ideas and practice. We offer talks on the third Friday evening of every month, as well as courses and workshops, a Jungian library, a newsletter and discussion groups. Please visit our website at jungsocietymelbourne.com or our Facebook page. Mary Symes is a therapist in Melbourne's Outer East who specialises in dream work. Mary came to Jungian psychology and dream work after the sudden loss of her husband in midlife. She found that her dreams were signposts along the path of her healing journey. Her book, Grief and Dreams, recounts her experience. Mary also taught at the Chiron Centre for many years. Today's talk offers a deep exploration into what the myth of Ariadne and the bull means for women and their relationship with their inner masculine energy. Mary takes us on an in-depth journey through the myth, including the psychological tensions and tasks the myth requires us to attend to, if we are to find a fruitful and meaningful union between feminine and masculine. Again, please note that Gareth Hill's model of the psyche, referred to by Mary, can be found on our Facebook page. I hope you enjoy Mary's talk about Ariadne and the bull. Mary's special interests include astrology, grief, loss, mythology, and of course, dreams. And tonight, and at tomorrow's workshop, she's going to explore the Cretan myth of Ariadne and the bull. When she looks at it in tonight's lecture, she's going to be using that myth to explore the development of a woman's relationship to her inner masculine energy. So I'm looking forward to this, and I'd like you to join me in welcoming Mary tonight. I dream. I dream I'm at home. I'm looking out of the kitchen window and see a very large bull in the backyard racing around as Shadow does. Shadow is my dog. Others are inside with me. I sense the bull is going to charge and have great difficulty shutting the back door and then the kitchen door, which are slightly different from reality. Then the inevitable crash as the door splinters and the bull is in the kitchen. Seems by winding a cord around its horn, the bull can be managed. This dream came to me three years ago, and at first hearing, it may not sound like a particularly spiritual dream in keeping with Annette's theme for this series. However, the more I've pondered it, the more I've come to realise that the experience of this dream alerts us to a very present and very current dilemma for many women. This bull is a very real spiritual problem demanding to be addressed. 
Its neglected energy can no longer be contained in the backyard of the personal unconscious and dismissed as just instinctual and by association inferior. It has burst through into the realm of the personal and cannot be ignored. Those of you familiar with Euripides the Bacchae will recognise that this is like Dionysus arriving in Thebes and the terrible problem this presents for the ruling masculine principle of Pentheus. Chaos is challenging order. I work mainly with women, so I cannot speak about the spiritual problems that are emerging in men's dreams. This dream is an intensely personal one, but it also reflects the intensity, urgency, fear and necessity to deal with a highly charged, numinous energy that is exploding out of the unconscious in individual dream sessions and in the dream groups, demanding to be acknowledged, honoured, dialogued with and, where possible, engaged in some form of relationship. And I think it is a particularly feminine problem, a problem of the feminine in both men and women, because for many centuries the archetypal feminine, the transpersonal lunar matrix that actually reflects the experience of the feminine has been missing, consigned to the unconscious, demonised, scapegoated or obliterated. There has been no mirror for the vital life force concerned with soul, body, process, cycles, experience, ecstasy as the feminine knows it. The only framework has been that of the patriarchy, which no longer even reflects the masculine experience. It has been corrupted to a power-based control over system. The tension between Apollo and Dionysus that enabled these gods to share the temple at Delphi has been lost. And Dionysus has fallen into the unconscious to become the bull in my dream. Today our institutions only acknowledge or worship Apollo. Even the notion of a transpersonal feminine remains alien to many. So without a connection to the ancient goddess religion, the feminine lacks grounding in its archetypal roots. Being born a full-blown daughter of the patriarchy, these days I'm very uncomfortable with the word spiritual because for me it has very ecclesiastical and hierarchical overtones. We have been badly burnt by Apollo's too bright sun with too much of his form of logos which posits itself as perfect and superior and relegates soul to the feminine and the body and dismisses it as inferior. I'm also very mindful of von, of von Franz's warning that for a woman to talk about spirituality in this old way takes her straight into the waiting arms of her animus and his enthroned in position in her head, splitting her off immediately from her felt body knowing. And of Marion Woodman's addiction to perfection and her exploration of the rape of the feminine by the spiritualised demon lover. So I will return to the imagery of the dream because for me this is the area of my spiritual practice, the realm of psyche, of image and the imaginal. Here I find connection to what supports me when all else fails. Here I am awed. Here the ego sense of who I am is relativised. Here I am in the presence of powers much greater than myself. Here I tap into a most profound energy for healing. 
Here I am given access to material I could never otherwise know. My connection with spirit comes through my honouring of soul. So when I'm confronted by a bull in my kitchen, I take note. What God, what forceful, fertilising, inspiriting force has presented itself? Remember that Zeus, Poseidon and Dionysus all take the form of the bull. It's not enough to say of the dream, ah, bull equals instincts. This bull had a particular feel and a particular intent. And the dream not only sets up the problem of a powerful natural force from the unconscious charging into a more domestic ego-related domain, shattering the very inadequate ego defences, it also gives clues on the ways to be with this dilemma, the cord around the horns. In that simple image, and with the ego's willingness and receptivity to see and travel in the landscape of psyche, we are transported to Minoan Crete, the labyrinth of Knossos, and the mythic story of Ariadne. My sense is that this dream cord is Ariadne's thread, the profound knowing of the journey to the centre of the labyrinth and the means by which we can return the link between inner and outer realms, the thread that joins consciousness with the unconscious, the thread that guides us through an initiation into the underworld meeting with death without splitting off the rebirth of an altered connection with life on our return, a cord that can link us back to our ancestral roots. The horns of the bull connect me with the horns of consecration that obviously played such an important role in the religious life and landscape of the labyrinth. Consecrate means to devote to a spiritual purpose. So the horns and the cord suggest the dream intent is not about an heroic killing off or goring of either the bull or me, but calls for a different understanding. That of the archetype of Ariadne as a transpersonal vessel a mediating energy that holds and reflects the sacred spiritual experience of the feminine in relation to the bull. An experience that honours nature, that follows the lunar cycle as the moon emerges from the darkness of the new moon and moves from maiden to the full moon mother to crone, to disappear again into the dark of the night sky, to be reborn again three days later. This is the natural experience of the feminine experiencing itself. The dream is a call to return to the consecration, to the sacredness and honouring of this feminine cycle and knowing that is needed to meet the bull. Because this Dionysian bull energy is Zoe, the divine indestructible life force, the impregnating spirit of nature. We need the transformer of myths to help step down the force of this transpersonal current. Ariadne's story moves us from the unconscious, undifferentiated wholeness with the bull through to its dark, instinctual, half-human nature of the Minotaur, to its heroic form as Theseus, to a final union with the divine inner masculine. Ariadne, who knows about bulls, whose father Minos was sired by Zeus in bull form, 
whose mother Pasiphae was impregnated by Poseidon's bull, whose half-brother was the minotaur Asterion, the bull-headed youth, Ariadne, whose lover Theseus was the son of a bull god, and whose later true partner is Dionysus, the dying and resurrecting androgynous god of women, the bull god transformed into creative phallus. Ariadne, whose culture was steeped in bull lore, fertilised and energised by the sacred marriage between the great lunar mother goddess and the priest king wearing the mask of the bull god. Ariadne, whose fate it became to transform the wild, instinctual, thonic, divine nature of the bull through her own consciously felt and embodied experience into its human representation of the transcendent and imminent bull god, Dionysus. 4,000 years later, the task has not changed, only its location. What was extroverted onto and held by a cultural and religious matrix is now presenting more as an introverted, inner and individual problem and we need Ariadne's story to guide us in this pressing spiritual crisis manifesting as that bull in my kitchen. This bull did not fall out of the... uh, This bull? (laughs) This dream did not fall out of the blue. It belongs in a specific context and is part of a continuum. That's why personal associations are so important in dream work. So it's relevant to know that I'd been working with the Ariadne material for a number of years, so I could recognise this dream cord when I saw it. I had been thrown her thread before through the need to explore and find the archetypal resonance for a powerful something that was moving in the psyches of the women with whom I worked and which eventually took the form of a talk in 1995 and as the booklet into the labyrinth. I'd been to Crete the year before this dream and visited the labyrinth and following my reading of Rodney Castleton's book last year, The Gnosis Labyrinth, I now prefer to think of that whole complex of buildings that make up this sacred area or temple as the labyrinth rather than as the palace of Minos that most of us would have recognised it as, or limiting it to the maze idea that we've come to associate with the word labyrinth. Actually, a labyrinth is not a maze. It's a unicursal spiral with no false passages. It is the decisive turn in the centre that's the tricky bit, presenting either as a place of death or as a way to the light. On that same trip, I'd also spent a day at the Villa of Mysteries at Pompeii, this special initiatory chamber where the union of Dionysus and Ariadne is the central image of a mature woman's initiation into the Dionysian mysteries, a ritual reflecting the spiritual experience of the feminine, a ritual strong enough to hold the phallic energy of the transcendent bull god in union with the feminine. And in tomorrow's workshop, we will look in great detail at um, these murals. And, um, yeah, there are some places too in the workshop if people are interested. So at the time of the dream, I was also becoming a mature woman. 
entering a time of profound change, the change, menopause, with no spiritual or cultural container to affirm and reflect my experience. My body and psyche were living the change. My ego consciousness was much more ambivalent. I swung between control, denial, despair, frustration, impotence and awe as once again my body, as in pregnancy, ran to a pattern that had nothing to do with my ego control. In our religious culture of transcendence, it's hard to realise that this body connection and context is so important in relation to the feminine experience of spirit. Because without a body, a vessel, a container or a cauldron, there is nowhere for spirit to go, nothing for spirit to ignite, nowhere for what Marion Woodman calls the kitchen work to be done. It is no coincidence that the bull charges into the kitchen, the place of domestic feminine transformation, the centre of the home, the place of Hestia and the alchemical hearth fire. At the time of the dream, my task was to stay consciously connected with the profound changes in my body, to consecrate this transition so that my body and dream world could initiate me naturally into the next stage of life, from full moon to waning moon, from mother to crone, a profoundly spiritual task that is a process that demands embodiment, a deepening into, not an escape from this naturally unfolding experience of the life cycle. With so much denial and silence around menopause, with HRT, fear of ageing, the invisibility and devaluing of the older woman, the anorexic female figure still being held up as the ideal of perfection, no wonder the bull in my dream is agitated. Again, the dream is specific. This is shadow material that is demanding to be seen, given voice to and encountered. Ariadne's mythic story is a thread that can teach us much about this spiritual problem of the bull and our relationship with it, especially in the context of a woman's life cycle and our changing attitudes to the inner masculine as it transforms from unconscious bull god to half-man, half-bull brother to heroic lover to divine inner partner. But a warning. This also sets off our deep cultural chironic woundedness, which was a the theme of one of my talks here some time ago about um, Chiron and the wounded healer. So much of that split between spirit and soul, mind and body. One of the wonderful things about working with dreams is the way in which the dream content slowly reveals itself. I was drawn back to this dream after agreeing to do this presentation, but little did I realise when I wrote it down in 1998 that it would anchor a talk to the Jung Society or reveal so much about my inner process. Again, I can't emphasise enough the importance of dream work, of a dream journal, of a regular commitment to our inner life. Dreams, in my experience, are a major component of Ariadne's thread. In one version, her thread is the light from her radiant crown that enables our heroic self to manage this journey into the labyrinth and return. Dreams illuminate. They are the divine sparks of our individual and at times collective spiritual process 
Like Ariadne, dreams give us soul. As in the dream, when I wind a cord in a figure of eight around the horns of the bull, so now I want to introduce a simple diagram of Gareth Hill's model of psyche. It's quite a different take on psyche than the one that Peter McChris presented last night. Because this diagram is our Ariadne's thread for tonight and tomorrow a framework upon which to reflect the dynamics of psyche at many levels and hopefully provide a context for the bull in my dream, the dynamism of the dynamic feminine and the current spiritual crisis that results when soul and spirit are split. It also informs my retelling of Ariadne's story, of her connection to and transformation of the numinous bull energy through the minotaur, to Theseus, to Dionysus. The characters in this myth can be seen as parts of one psyche, as well as tracing the cultural development of Western civilization. Those of you who have read Roberto Colasso's The Marriage of Cadmus and Harmony will have experienced the initial shock of having the same myth told in many different ways. But this flexibility is really important. Gareth Hill's diagram emerges from the static masculine, from Apollo, but by bringing the dramatic theatrical multiplicity of Dionysus and the dynamic feminine to the telling of the myth, allowing the logic of psyche and the dream to use the stage created by Apollo's structure, we get the best of both worlds and contribute in a small way to bringing the chasm between soul and spirit, bridging the chasm between soul and spirit. But it's also important to remember, too, that this model is also a fiction. It's as imaginal as the myth we're about to explore. But it does give us a language to work the interface between archetypal pattern and modern experience. It enables us to tell stories about ourselves but it demands that I move constantly between spiritual and physical, imaginal and real, mythic time and present time, and no doubt will drive some of you rather crazy. These poles are not gender-bound. Men and women relate to both, and there are examples of masculine and feminine at each pole. For example, we find Dionysus at the dynamic feminine pole and Queen Victoria or Maggie Thatcher at the static masculine. Now what Gareth Hill does is um, he takes that basic cross and then turns it into this figure of eight. Oh, we're going to do it together. <laughs> um, by linking the cross now by uh, what he calls the fiery initiation and the watery initiation, and so creates this figure of eight. Now, to my mind, this is a current model of androgyny, um, which is about the flow and interchange between the masculine and feminine within ourselves. And I think it is equivalent yep, to this ancient um, image of Dionysus and Ariadne where we have the alteration 
and combination of the masculine and feminine principles. This image of um, Dionysus and Ariadne is central to the murals in the Villa of Mysteries, but it has been very badly damaged. It's the one mural that's very hard to see. Um, and because the, um, uh, the Villa of Mysteries is, up, is at Pompeii, it was covered up by the eruption in um, AD 79, and so remained hidden until uh, early in this century. And what's interesting is that this is a cameo from the first, fourth century AD. Um, there's nothing written about uh, that central uh, image at Pompeii, and yet it's almost identical to this, but would have been completely covered at the time. Now, there's no writings about this image at all, but somehow it has continued um, through the unconscious. And um, I think holds very beautifully that, that image of, of androgyny. So what I'd like to do now is just um, read you a very brief uh, traditional telling of the myth. And you'll hear by its language that it's um, extraordinarily patriarchal, but there we go. Minos, ruler of ancient Crete, had a licentious wife. Listen to the language. And his licentious wife was Pasiphae, who falls passionately in love with the sacred bull and cohabits with him. With the secret assistance of Daedalus, the famed Athenian architect who was in exile in Crete. When the queen gives birth to a monster called the Minotaur, Minos is outraged and orders Daedalus to build a labyrinth in which to hide this shameful progeny. The monster feeds only on human flesh. Thus, as part of the tribute paid by all the city-states in the Aegean over which he rules, Minos demands sacrificial victims. The Athenians in particular are compelled to send seven young men and seven young women each year to be sacrificed to the Minotaur. In order to end this outrage, Theseus, heroic son of the king of Athens, volunteers to go to Crete as one of the sacrificial victims and to kill the Minotaur. When he arrives, Ariadne, daughter of Minos, falls in love with him and secretly gives him the clue to the labyrinth which she has obtained from Daedalus. With the aid of this clue, Theseus kills the Minotaur, frees the Athenians and escapes with Ariadne. However, he abandons her on an island and returns to Athens to rule. Later, he marries Ariadne's younger sister, Phaedra, and rules Crete as well. So what I'd like to do is use this rather modified version of Hill's model of the dynamic masculine and feminine um, and look at the way one telling of Ariadne's story can perhaps give us some images for um, um, understanding this interesting model um, as well as helping amplify what that energy of the bull might be in my dreams. Okay, so 
When we listen to, to a myth and it's unfolding, uh, it's important to remember that it's an intrapsychic pattern as well as a cultural one. And once again, what I'm presenting is a very abridged um, version. So we start with the landscape of Crete to locate the lunar consciousness of the static and dynamic feminine, a consciousness of earth and water, change and no change. At the static feminine pole is Pasiphae, Ariadne's mother, representing the great goddess of Crete with the bull as her consort. At the dynamic feminine pole is Ariadne, most holy, mistress of the labyrinth. Oh, I'll say too, before we go into this, that in the workshop tomorrow, we will explore this model in, in much greater detail. Um, this is just to locate the myth in this um, framework. So we've got um, Ariadne at the dynamic feminine pole. And uh, she has many names. Most holy, mistress of the labyrinth, the potent one, high fruitful mother. She's representative of the moon goddess, being groomed to be the queen to the bull, following the religious pattern of her culture. That is, she's betrothed in utero to the bull god Dionysus, but in his thonic form. Originally, Pasiphae and Ariadne were two faces of the parthenogenic great goddess, immortals in their own right. As Aridella, Ariadne was a great queen of heaven, and as Arihagne, pure, she ruled the underworld. On its own, this feminine matrix is a closed system, the Euroboros. But in the myth, things start to stir. A different consciousness is emerging. Zeus and Europa penetrate this system. Their son Minos marries Pasiphae and becomes the king wearing the bull mask. Priestesses begin to be replaced by priests. Minos signals change. His horizons have expanded. He's trading with Greece and has a large navy. He won't submit to the year king's sacrifice. There is a change in the balance of power, with lunar sovereignty now under threat. Minos asks Poseidon to send a sign of his importance, the bull from the sea. Poseidon obliges, but Minos didn't sacrifice the sacred bull as would have been proper. Instead, he substituted another and committed an act of hubris. The god's displeasure at Minos's inflated response is displaced onto the now inferior feminine and Pasiphae, inflamed with lust, mates with the sacred bull in a hollowed centre of, of a constructed cow. So we can see now here quite clearly the patriarchal denigration of the previous sacred marriage between the goddess and the bull. And the minotaur Asterion, the bull-headed youth, is born of this, of this union. And so that mystery marriage has now become monstrous. And it is a time in psyche of terrible danger. The labyrinth, once a temple complex to nature deities of the Bronze Age and the centre of religious life, now becomes the construct of Athenian craftsmanship. Daedalus was said to have built it. And instead of a place of worship and religious ritual, the labyrinth becomes a single structure, a place of imprisonment, and Asterion the Minotaur becomes a figure of shame hidden at its centre.
we get the feeling that now the mystery rite has been defiled. The minotaur, the lunar masculine, rages out of control, paralleling the damage that Poseidon's bull is also wreaking on the Cretan countryside. Imprisoned in the labyrinth, the minotaur is fed the tribute children from Athens as raw flesh. These children are sent regularly as reparation for the death of Androgeus, Ariadne's brother, who died either on the horns of the bull of Marathon or through treachery at the hands of the Athenians. This dangerous situation in Psyche has to call out a hero who will confront this monster. Theseus, who is at the dynamic masculine pole, is being groomed for just this task. Back on Crete, Heracles captures Poseidon's rampaging bull that fertilised Pasiphae, takes it to mainland Greece, and it ends up in Marathon and becomes Theseus's last heroic task before setting out for Crete. So the dynamic end of this pole is becoming highly charged. The dynamic lunar feminine is also being affected by this change in the balance of power. And as the emerging solar energies penetrate this matriarchal lunar landscape, the goddess becomes reduced in the heroic age to a mythic woman. The theme of the Nexus program of last year that some of you may have attended. Ariadne's status as goddess becomes reduced to that of a mortal woman. So as Theseus leaves Athens to kill the Minotaur, Ariadne is coming closer to human consciousness, less archetypal, more able to mirror our mortal experience. Ariadne as mortal woman falls in love with Theseus when he arrives on Crete and so becomes the image so relevant for us, for us right now and to our topic. She lives the dilemma of being caught between her love for a mortal solar hero and her betrothal to a god of her matriarchal lunar matrix. As women, many of us married into patriarchy and in so doing betrayed so much of our own potency and desire. Betrayal of her culture and religion. She gives up the secret of the labyrinth to Theseus and betrayal of her half-brother Asterion, killing off the lunar masculine to support the new solar heroic masculine. It is shocking when we realise this is our journey. These are our tasks, our self-betrayals. But these are necessary betrayals. As Jean Houston says in Search of the Beloved, it is only this sort of pain that moves us from our smaller stories to our large one. And often it is the only way we can leave home. Ariadne also has a sister Phaedra, the shining bright one. The sisters reflecting two aspects of the feminine, the dark and the light, and prefiguring a split in the feminine that matches that in the arena of the, of the animus. So, meanwhile, in the solar landscape of Psyche, of fire and air, we have at the static masculine, Aegeus, king of Athens, childless after two marriages. He visited the oracle at Delphi. Would he conceive a son? Yes, but he was not to undo the wineskin's mouth till he reached the highest point of Athens, lest he die one day of grief. He didn't understand the oracle, so went to Troezen to visit his friend King Pythias. Pythias understood the oracle and wanted a powerful grandson, 
so got Aegeus drunk and let him sleep with his daughter Aethra. That same night, Aethra, following a dream sent by Athene to wade across to a nearby island, also slept with, with Poseidon. So energy is now pouring into the dynamic masculine pole as the hero is conceived. Aegeus went back to Athens but left his sword and sandals under a rock in case the son was born. The son was to lift the rock, claim the sword and go to Athens but not to be told of his heritage. At age 16, Theseus went to Delphi, offered his first hair clippings to Apollo, lifted the rock, claimed the sword and sandals and set off for Athens. He took a dangerous route. His journey demanded six labours. Each one involved killing off some sort of monstrous or dangerous energy. And Theseus made the punishment fit the crime. So one of the monsters or one of the men who would capture travellers, rob them and then tie them to two pine trees that were bent down tie one leg to each tree and then let the tree go so that it was split in half that was what Theseus did to him so that um, like um, uh, like killing like really um, and so undertaking these labours is, is what Gareth Hill talks about uh, as that um, fiery initiation and it's what enables us to move from the dynamic masculine across to the static masculine via these uh, fiery initiations. And so Theseus arrives in Athens, he's recognised as the king's son and there is great rejoicing. He goes to Marathon, he conquers the bull and when he returns, that's the bull that had... Um, fertilised Pasiphae. When he returns, the seven youths and seven maidens are being chosen by lot to go to Crete to be fed to the Minotaur. Theseus volunteers. They set off in a ship with black sails. If successful, they will return with white sails. So the energy now moves down the pole from the static masculine towards the dynamic feminine. Arriving on Crete, Theseus meets Ariadne, who holds the knowing of the labyrinth. They fall in love. So we are now deep in the dynamic feminine. And Ariadne agrees to help Theseus and gives him access to the knowing of the labyrinth. Ariadne, in falling in love with Theseus, has now projected her unconscious bull energy out onto her solar hero. She gives him the thread, the clue, her soul, and he undertakes his night sea journey, his journey into the underworld via the labyrinth. Here at its centre, the, he the solar hero slays the lunar monster. Asterion the Minotaur is killed. The earth quakes. The balance of power shifts again. But today we are no longer in the heroic age. We need a different attitude to these monstrous feelings, a different respect for these shadow qualities. There have been too many killings. So now there is an enormous disturbance at the static feminine. And in fact, the kingdom 
is destroyed by fire and earthquake. And again, there are many variations of what happens next. But they arrive on Naxos, they sleep, and in the morning, Theseus sails off to Athens, forgetting Ariadne and forgetting to change the sails. There are several ways of thinking about this um, fearful forgetting. (laughs) One is that the heroic masculine has a hard time staying connected with his anima or his feminine self. He quite literally forgets it and sails off. Another way to think about it and another variation of the myth is that this leaving is about divine intervention. Athene appears in a dream telling Theseus he must leave Ariadne behind because she is the true partner to the god Dionysus. The original prophecy now comes to pass as in Athens Aegeus sees the black sails on the boat entering the harbour and throws himself off the Acropolis, dying of grief. The old Senex king is dead, so both static poles have now been shattered. Now the split in the feminine becomes apparent. Phaedra, the bright one, goes off with Theseus to Athens as benefits the solar energy and her role as anima woman. And Ariadne is well and truly back with her lunar roots, betrayed, pregnant, bereft, abandoned and alone. This was the midlife condition of many a modern women and the state that prompted my initial involvement with this myth. Ariadne has been betrayed by the very solar energy for which she betrayed her homeland and spiritual origins, her maternal matrix. And this is an inevitable betrayal. With it comes the death of the projections onto the outer other, opening up room for the entry of the inner divine other, in our myth taking the form of Dionysus, and a return, consciously this time, to the ancestral religious lunar rhythms of a spiritual femininity, what Rachel Hillel calls the sacred vulva, the seat of dignity and self-worth of the feminine. On Naxos, we suffer the death of the false self, that persona part of ourselves that was nurtured and defined from the, from the outside reflection of what others expect, project and reward, what Murray Stein calls our psychosocial identity. On Naxus we give up the dependency on being an anima woman, that I am worthless if I am not the carrier of another's soul. On Naxos we shift focus from outer to inner, to a definition of ourselves that comes from an inner orientation offering a truer reflection of who we are, nourished from the roots buried deep in the archetypal feminine. The ego becomes relativised to a feminine self. We become psychologically androgynous as we take responsibility for our own soul. In her despair, the mortal Ariadne hangs herself and gives birth on the other side of life, in death, in the underworld. And that's a powerful image. The ancients had that innate lunar knowing of the cycles of life, death and rebirth. Life and death were not split, 
So this image was not the problem it has become today. Is this perhaps all that is left of Ariadne in her ancient form as Lady of the Labyrinth, Goddess of the Underworld, a surviving shard, the faintest vestige of the ancient mysteries not expunged by the heroic retelling? Because in the Eleusinian mysteries, we also have Persephone, who gives birth in the underworld. My sense of this image of the hanged woman is that it reflects the ego death that is suffered when we experience some terrible, terrible loss or betrayal in our own life. We find ourselves caught up in an archetype of initiation, whether we like it or not. We are bereft. Life cannot go on as we know it. Death becomes a seductive addiction. Our persona self Phaedra has sailed off with Theseus to Athens and our ego can no longer stay connected to life through willpower alone. Women will tell about this split, I'm fine, on the outside, while they are dying on the inside. And this was certainly my experience in the long years that followed the death of my husband and which finally found some form of recognition in my book, Grief and Dreams. Because if we can hold this gaping wound of betrayal and loss open, stay with it, suffer this Naxos experience consciously as we follow the turns of this next labyrinth, the energy we meet at the centre may be Dionysus, the bull energy transformed through lived experience to the divine inner partner, that is, a conscious, passionate connection to the imaginal realm, a conduit to the self, a connection with the creative phallus, an alchemical conjunctio, a masculine that supports the feminine. Because in the myth, Dionysus does appear to Ariadne, claims her as his true and equal partner, gives her a ring and the crown of the corona borealis, where we still see her today in the sky as the northern lights. The lunar light of Ariadne is united with the midnight sun of Dionysus. Exquisite, isn't it? However, this separation of the inner sisters, Phaedra and Ariadne, and the corresponding split between the mortal and immortal lovers leaves us with a terrible split on the static masculine dynamic feminine pole. Most of us hang out at least in the first half of life with Phaedra and Theseus in the static masculine in Athens, where we enact the mortal marriage. But as with many a patriarchal marriage, both partners come to a tragic end. Phaedra lusts after Hippolytus, Theseus's son by an Amazon queen, the dynamic masculine she had never known, and hangs herself when rejected by the youth, first betraying him to Theseus, who has him killed by Poseidon's bull from the sea, who stampedes Hippolytus's horses as he flees. Theseus, the abductor of women, dies the sad death of an outworn, old, exiled Senex king. Ariadne and Dionysus enact the immortal marriage, Dionysus becoming in our age the androgynous god of women who now demand of a partnership that each carry their own soul image. And perhaps this is made easier with the movement into menopause. So many women say, 
Men no longer look at me in the street or at a party. I've become invisible. And while this often expresses deep feelings of hurt, it is also a freeing up of being the carrier of another's projections, of being responsible for another's soul. It becomes time to confront the inner, often Apollonian critical animus voice and recognise the despair of living by standards that do not support the feminine's own matter, mater, mother. And this takes us close to what Esther Harding describes as the woman who is one in herself. Christine Downing suggests that a woman in whom Ariadne is consciously known is a woman in touch with her own power. She is not defined by her relationship with others, she is not afraid of her own sensuality or capacity for ecstasy, and she is and lives as women themselves experience their womanness. Dionysus is masculinity, male sexuality as women experience it, the phallus at the disposal of the feminine. But this is a terrible moment, as we will see in the Villa of Mysteries tomorrow. How we receive that phallus is crucial in our conscious knowing of soul and our relationship with that most mysterious of gods. So how do we address this split on this axis, the rupture between spirit and soul? And uh, this is what we will work with in tomorrow's workshop when we look at the murals of the Villa of Mysteries and also Gareth Hill's model. We've lost touch with the rituals that enable a conscious transition from static masculine to dynamic feminine. We no longer enact the rites that grow us into the next stage of life, so we struggle mainly on our own and in the dark. From the shards of what remains of the feminine mysteries, this transition seems mainly to do with ritual and process, with experience and a viable connection with the imaginal realm not with intellectual discourse. We need to be able to carry the imagery and process in our actual bodies. We need our body as vehicle, as vessel, to anchor the erotic sensuality of the transpersonal, earthy feminine. Dream work, alchemy, shamanism, chaos theory, among others, also provide ways of negotiating that transition. In Gareth Hill's model, ideally there is a marriage, a union between the static masculine and the dynamic feminine, which leads through yet another watery initiation, another dark night of the soul, to a new way of being in the static feminine. And with this emerges a whole new sense of self, a realisation of the whole personality. So perhaps now we can see more clearly the stepping down of this Dionysian divine indestructible life force in the pattern of Ariadne's relationship to the bull as she moves from undifferentiated wholeness with the lunar bull god of her mother line through to the dark instinctual energy of Asterion, the bull-headed brother of her virgin adolescent self, when the Minotaur is sacrificed and the bull energy projected onto and transformed by the heroic solar masculine, the lover energy of Theseus, he initiates Ariadne into motherhood and then through betrayal of her projections opens a way for a more conscious, through the death of the old self, 
a more conscious connection through the conjunctio to her true and equal inner partner, the transcendent but also imminent spirit of the phallic god Dionysus. And this image of the conscious androgyne is usually depicted as asexual. And um, here we have a, a glorious image of Dionysus and Ariadne. Again, fairly similar to the one, that black and white one on the cameo. So, how was I going with all of this? How was my latest connection to the bull unfolding? Not too well. Eight months later, in November 1998, I dream. I'm walking past some very large covered cattle yards. I decide to try and put the cattle into the yards by myself. They are close by and for some reason I need them to be contained. Think I have shadow with me. I get all of them in, but then one black beast turns on me, won't go in, and I have to take evasive action. I climb up and up and up the railings of the yards, almost to the roof, only just escaping the beast's horns. It's from this position I'm rescued by a male friend. After some very complicated happenings, which I'd forgotten in the dream, I'm down. I just, we decide to give me another go with this one black bull. But again it gets the better of me and I take refuge behind a door, trying to shut the door to keep it out, but I can't quite shut it. The horns are coming through. Again I scream for help and this same male friend and someone come along a corridor to help. But then in January this year, as I was working on this talk, wondering if the bull would appear again, I had a very powerful dream. It was set in the backyard of my home, where three years previously the bull had been racing around. But now in its place, there was an earth-moving man doing major reconstruction work with his bulldozer. So thank you. Thank you for listening to Mary Symes' Ariadne in the Bull. Through the story of her own bull dreams and her telling of the myth, we learned about our need to struggle with our inner masculine energies and to attend to what occurs within. Ultimately, engaging with this myth, we can discover meaningful intrapsychic experiences and rewards if we do Ariadne's work. We hope you enjoyed Mary's talk and please visit us at www.youngsocietymelbourne.com or have a look at our Facebook page. Thank you.